Baby, the first main episode of the year. I'm back in the hot seat. I am back with a um, bit of knee pain. I don't know. Hopefully, it's to do with the cold. But there is this thing, isn't there, of being middle aged, which means that any problem in your 30s, you go, oh, "I hope that goes away." Whereas in in your late 40s, you kind of go, "Well, that'll probably need replacing." <laughs> Whether it's a knee or a fucking heart valve. Look, I need to get more positive here. I'm actually in a really good mood. And we've got a guest today, Matt Green. Now, Matt, if you don't know Matt's videos online, he's another one of these guys that's built up a huge following doing these kind of political comedy videos. It's true that his angle is more of a sort of centre-left vibe, but it's, it, where he's done well is like... He's just taking the piss, you know, it's that good old fashioned thing of poking at those in power and he does go the other way as well. So I guess, you know, one good thing to do might be before you listen to our chat is watch a couple of Matt's videos. Okay, I'm going to get on with the patrons, new patrons. So if you are a patron in this show, the benefits are is that you'll get it early, ad-free and with bonus content. And there will be a bonus section in today's show where me and Matt Green talk about, well, you know, what TV shows people actually watch. Not the ones that they tell you about, the top 10 dramas, must-see dramas in The Times or The Telegraph or The Observer. I mean the shit people actually watch. And one of the benefits in inverted commas, slightly, of becoming a patron, is that I will read out your name when you join and tell you who I think you sound like. So we first up, we've got some new patrons. Andrew Burgess. A Burgess. Bergy. That would be your nickname, wouldn't it, on the stag do? Is Bergy coming? Bergy. Although Bergy does sound like bogey in a Geordie accent. Bergy. I got a fucking Bergy up my nose, like. Simon Morris. I mean, that is the most solid. That feels like a name that probably got retired in 1967. You know, when it was all free love and anyone, you know, you had to have a cool name and be playing a sitar. If you were called Simon Morris, you, you weren't groovy, man. You weren't part of getting Simon Morris. It would be incredible, Simon, if you were like this devastatingly handsome and sexy name. Because no offence, but that name on the kind of like, will this man be sexy scale, that's, that's not registering high, Simon. So now I realise I'm sort of saying, send photos. That's a weird thing to be saying on your own podcast. But it's fine if you do it at blokes, because we have double standards in society, so that's good. we got Scott Williamson, Scott Williamson, who just sounds like he has to be like one of those fucking nasal Aussies there. So we've got Scott Williamson who's become a patron. He sounds like a guy that played for the Australian ODI team very briefly in the 90s. Ah, Scott Williams from comes in, takes a couple of wickets there. He's actually a really good seamer, Scott Williams. You know, he comes in about 82, 82 clicks. All their weird little phrases that they use. But welcome to the Patreon community. And then somebody who's either returned or given it was the first of the month has sort of uh, renewed his card details, which you have to do all the time now, Will Farmer. Will Farmer, who is, as I say, returning. And you can't say Will Farmer's name without going, Will Farmer, you're not saying I go quagga player, I let you boom boom down, kiss Tama, Will Farmer. <sighs> Please tell me that your friends do that to you. And if they don't, they should start. Domain talking point. Now, for long-term listeners, David Domain, of course, is our super patron, one of the first. 
he is uh, sits high at the Patreon table and and looks at you know stuff in previous episodes and gives his thoughts on them. He made a point. I can't remember if this was in the Patreon only. Oh, by the way, remember there's a monthly Patreon only episode, and if you are a VIP Patreon, you get your question included, guaranteed. Is that I made comments about the fact that I preferred first past the post to avoid constant coalition governments. David says there is no guarantee that first past the post will continue to return single party governments here now. This is a fair point. We had a minority Tory government in 2017 to 19. We had a coalition from 2010 to 2050. Actually, how long out of the last 30 years have the Conservatives actually spent in sole power? All right, if we start from 97, okay, so it's 27 years. So Labour did 13, right? The Tories have now done 14. But of those 14, it was only 2015 to 17. There was two years there. And there's been the last four years. Sick. Oh, my God, there's a stat. So if the Tories are getting stick at the next election, right, everyone's saying everything's their fault. They could go, we have only spent six of the last 27 years in full power. I mean, it would, look, it would take a lot of credibility. It would stretch that to breaking point. But going, the real problem is you haven't had enough majority conservative government. But anyway, going back to the point. David says, as fewer and fewer people vote for the main two parties, hung parliaments are going to become more likely. That's an interesting point. I suppose the evidence isn't really there. And he also goes on to say that in the New Zealand general election, maybe contested by Scott Williamson, of 2020 and the Scottish election of 2011 both resulted in single party governments despite having proportional representation. Fair point. This is this is classic David Domain there. You know, I, I just spout off with my partially informed polemic and he's there to, you know, to introduce one or two facts. I also mentioned, well, the weather's changed a lot now, so it makes less sense, but I was mentioning the fact that the, my first sign of the global climate crisis is that I couldn't get my beers chilled outside in December. And David says that if you get a south to southwest airflow in early winter, the UK will get temperatures in the low teens. The highest temperature recorded in the UK ever in December was, fuck me, 187 centigrade on the 28th of December 2019 in Akferi, Scottish Highlands. Uh, this was assisted by the phone effect. So temperatures of 11 or 12 degrees Celsius are not signs of the apocalypse. How dare you, David Domain? Everything is a sign of the apocalypse. Global boiling. We're all going to die. Right, we'll just do a quick thank you and a fuck you. I want to say thank you to Dublin. I did some club gigs there the weekend just gone, but for the first time ever, I got an anti-English heckle. I don't know exactly what the guy just said. I heard English something and then the crowd seemed a bit uncomfortable. It did, however, give me an opportunity to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard about the far right riots here. What is you, you, you want me to go home as well, mate? I promise you I'll be going home Monday, all right? I'll be going home straight after the gigs. And um, they don't like it. They don't like the fact that he got characterised. And I spoke to a few people there. They don't like the fact he got characterised as far right. You know, as, um, as I spoke to one bloke, he's going, there's just a lot of people there that wanted to fucking lick trainers, you know. <laughs> They're just fucking thieves. But, yeah, I guess, you know, in the same way that once upon a time we had Brexit voters characterised as stupid and racist, I think across Europe now, as you get various countries pushing back on levels of migration, you're going to have a lot of far right pejoratives used and, and it's going to be an interesting year a lot of elections coming up but i am doing oh god this is so clunky isn't it look i just remind it reminded me that i'm doing a tour show in dublin on april the 11th at Whelan's comedy but as i said on stage 
you know, I've always wanted to do a tour show in Dublin. One of the problems is no one knows who the fuck I am because they don't watch the same telly over there. And then this goes back to the episode that I did with Neil Delamere where Jeff is shocked that Ireland has its own banks and different hotel chains. I mean, honestly, as I said at the time, it's almost like it's a different country. But weirdly, some stuff it does cut across. So I mentioned Premier Inn, not really a thing there. No one knew what I was talking about. Didn't get the Lenny Henry reference. But then... One of the other comics mentioned Take Me Out with Paddy McGuinness, brought the fucking house down. So I, I do not know if there's any rhyme or reason to what kind of like chains or products or brands or what television shows are shown in Ireland. But yeah, if you can think of something that's good for me to reference at my tour date on April the 11th, then what most people think, uk at gmail.com. Or if you're Irish and you think that some of what I've just said is, is borderline xenophobic, then feel free to issue Threats, eh? You're the far right, the fucking far right, they're fucking coming for you, Jeff. Ron, the fuck you goes to the National Theatre. So I always feel a bit of a dick about calling out fellow performers, but this is there's a play on there called Dear England, and they shared a clip of it recently, and it got a lot of stick. Now, I don't I don't know whether the play is any good. The play itself might be all right, but the problem was... Well, what they, they showed a scene from it. So the, the play is about the England team. I think it must be from the last World Cup or something because, you know, the England team became a bit trendy, didn't it? Gareth Southgate, he seemed a bit like, sort of like the love child of Gary Lineker and James O'Brien. And, you know, they were wearing the rainbow armbands up until they were told they couldn't, you know, but it was a great gesture. And then you had some of the younger players sassing Pretty Patel online. So suddenly the sort of liberal metropolitan types went from... I mean, I wrote on panel shows for years when if it was if you referred to a footballer at all, often the go-to joke was that they were sex offenders or rapists or bigots or hateful, you know. And that was the way it was for a long time. And then all of a sudden, surprise, surprise, people got the sense that the England sort of football team might be a bit on the progressive side. And just I just think there's such a wonderful group of young men. And, oh, my God, Rashford, free school dinners, yay. So the end result of all that is this play. And the problem with this clip was that the clip was trying to create locker room bants. So it had some of the England players all giving each other stick about, uh, oh, Pickford, you're doing, oh, Rashford, you And it's just, you cannot recreate locker room banter. Right? It's like all those terrible scenes when people are at a party, right? Whenever you look in the background, the way people are dancing is just really, it's really bogus looking. There's a lot of stuff you can't recreate in films. You can never recreate sport, certainly not locker room banter. You can recreate sex, and I think sex can be faked because I think women have had practice, put it that way. But look, I think it's a good idea in many ways. You know, if you've got middle-class people that would never really go to an England game, you know, they'd have those memories of watching England fans in the uh, Euro final, coked up, climbing over ticket barriers, and they've gone, not unreasonably, I don't want to fucking be within uh, two miles of that, right? But this is a really good idea. This Instead of actually going to football games, you could just put on plays about football matches, right? The loads of things that might make the middle classes feel uneasy. You just make it a play, Instead of going to a sweaty hard house club, you could do a play about a sweaty hard house club, you know? It's just like those kitchen sink dramas of the 50s, wasn't it? I'd never like to actually go to a council estate, but I certainly would like to see how they live. So I'm saying that maybe it was just a bad clip to share, but overall, the idea of packaging things that scare middle-class people into plays is a fucking banging idea. What most people think.
in that case, I'm off to write a script, a two-hour play about the night before the 1988 FA Cup final when the Wimbledon football team just went out on the piss. I'm gonna make that, I'm gonna make that into a really serious social comment about toxic masculinity. But meanwhile, uh, I'm really proud to announce this week's guest is Matt Green. <laughs> So I'm delighted to welcome to what most people think for the first time is my friend and comedian, Matt Green. Matt, welcome to the show. Lovely to be here. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. I'm good. I mean, I know this is like a written, sometimes, well, it used to be in comedy. People say, can you describe your comedy? I'm going <laughs> to ask you something equally weird, which is, can you describe your politics? Like on the sort of spectrum, are you, would you see yourself as a center left guy or is it further along than that? I think probably centre-left-ish is probably where I fall on a lot of issues. I think, yeah, my personal politics is probably somewhere around there. And when I'm doing stuff in terms of comedy, I'm I'm looking for what's I think is funny and what's interesting and what's relevant. And I think at the moment, so much of what's happening in the news is kind of mad and crazy and has been for several years that that's where my kind of comedy has ended up focusing. And so... Yeah, I think when I'm online, you could probably describe me as sort of centre-left-ish, but I don't want to feel like I'm part of a team, you know, and I think that's that's a danger, you know, with doing stuff online is that you can end up slightly captured by your audience that you can sort of feel like, mm. oh, I have to just talk about this or that because otherwise everyone's going to think, why are you talking about this? And And so I definitely spend a lot of time talking about how much I'm not a fan of what the Tories are doing, but equally... I'm happy to talk about other things as well. We'll get on to talking about what kind of happens to the get the Tories out industry, which I think, you know, in terms of what happens this year politically, obviously it is an election year now. And um, I'm sure you'd have had eyes like me. You know, I think we're both political nerds in a way is that both Sunak and Starmer have come herring out of the blocks. I'm not not sure that's the right sort of verb, is it, herring with these lads? (laughs) Stumbling. I think stumbling. Stumbling, sort of bumbling out of the blocks, going in the other direction maybe in Sunak's case on a couple of occasions. But but obviously Sunak has bravely nailed his colours to the mast that it's going to be somewhere in a roughly 170-day window. So that's, (laughs) I mean, he's he's gone balls out and said that the election is going to be in the second half of the year. That's his working assumption. I thought that 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 was that was an interesting phrase, wasn't it? That's my working assumption. It's sort of like someone needs to nudge him and go, "You're the bloke that decides." It's a bit like somebody going, "I'm afraid somebody has spilt something in the kitchen." I mean, my working assumption is that something has been spilled in the kitchen, but you were the only one in there. Yeah, but my working assumption is that it has happened. So all the reports I'm seeing suggest there has been spillage, and I don't want to get into a blame game. We just need to focus on the future now and what is the plan for the future and who's going to sort this out, you know? Yeah, just like the post office thing. Look, this spillage has happened under successive governments. I mean, it, it is one of those things where you can almost see the Tories' delight. There have been other issues like this, but where someone quickly checks and goes, right, that wasn't just us. Thank fuck for that. <laughs> yeah, that was a coalition thing. That was, we gave the Lib Dems post office minister because they didn't think that was important. And thank God for that. Thank God we did that. That may be um, David Cameron's biggest masterstroke. I mean, (laughs) that wasn't where I was going to start. But interestingly, the post office scandal, you know, one of the things I've been saying on tour is that no one knows what Ed Davies' voice sounds like. I feel like (laughs) 
we've edged a little bit closer to knowing what his voice sounds like. I mean, it would be incredible with all the political turmoil of the last few years if Ed Davies somehow didn't make it to fight the election. <laughs> I mean, I think that would somehow be absolutely exactly what I'd expect at the moment with politics. Like, I would expect somehow Ed Davies going to be out, Keir Starmer will fall down a well or something, and then, <laughs> you know, Rishi Sunak will end up winning by default because yeah. all the Labour Party forgot to put their papers in. It's got that, just everything at the moment has got that kind of feeling of, I mean, there's there's a phrase that people use all the time, which is, you know, satire is dead, you know, you, you couldn't make this up. And even though that's obviously not true, there is definitely moments where I think that, where I'm like, oh, I couldn't have. That isn't something I put in a sketch because that's so insane and it's literally just happened. And I feel like that's exactly where we are with Ed Davies. Like, he's a lead dem leader that you rightly say, no one really knows who he is or what he sounds like. I'm sure he was hoping that in the general election, he would just be able to sneak in and get a few mm. seats here and there. Yeah, that Clegmania vibes going, getting a bit of Clegmania. Because they are, you know, the Lib Dems have always been, you know, in certain areas, kind of the protest vote and the anti-government vote. If people don't want to mm. go as far as voting Labour, then they'll vote Lib Dem. <laughs> and if he gets brought down by something that happened in the coalition years when people didn't really know about him as much, that would be somehow totally standard for what's happening at the moment in politics. It'd be the most Lib Dem ever. You know, like how people say it's a very Spursy thing when Tottenham managed <laughs> to fuck stuff up literally out of nowhere. I mean, you talk about you know, Keir Starmer falling down a well. I think that's a great shout. I think another unexpected thing that could happen is that Rishi has a very late growth spurt. And we're talking seriously late here. <laughs> you know, the last guy to go, well, hasn't he shot up? Like he just gets up to like a respectable 5'10". He needs to do the Trump thing of getting some lifts in his shoes. That's the thing. And not be ashamed of it. Just be like, yeah, I'm wearing big shoes. I know it's terrible to say, but like it's the slightness of his frame, I think, is as much of an issue because I think that, I mean, Starmer, Johnson, and Sunak, all around 5'7, five, 5'8, five, like not tall guys, any of them, hmm. doesn't seem as much of an issue with Starmer, but the slightness of Rishi's frame, maybe he just needs to start hitting the uh, the protein packs, you know, just bulk up before the election. It's the slightness of the frame, but also the tightness of the clothes, I think. That's the thing. It's the, his clothes seem very fitted. Mm, they do. And, and also, you know, there, there were those pictures of him where his trousers didn't quite reach his shoes in that way that could look trendy, but on him just looks like he's wearing the wrong trousers. That's enough of a thing to kind of people to grab onto now and go, oh yeah, that's, we're not quite sure about that. And then it doesn't help. It could all change in election year. I mean, it doesn't feel like it will, but you, that's <laughs> something that you're obliged to say. I mean, they both came early on. I mean, Starmer did his speech, which we'll get to in a sec, but at the weekend, Sunak went on um, Laura Koonsberg. He looks tetchy. I mean, and I think that that has got to be a concern for the Conservatives because, I mean, look, Laura Koonsberg has her skills, but this isn't fucking Frost Nixon, you know what I mean? This is yeah. a bit of Sunday morning chat. She's not the most hardball interview I've, I've ever seen. He does give off that impression that someone that thinks that they can succeed through geometry, you know, where they go, right, I've worked all this out, I've done the revision, it's so unfair. It's so unfair that I'm not allowed to say all my stuff because I revised really, really hard. Yeah, it's almost like he's a character from a sitcom. He's like he's like a nerd character who's kind of done, he's like, I'm going to become the prom king or whatever by doing more work than anybody else. And it's like, and everyone's like that's, <laughs> that's not actually how it works. It is a popularity contest. And hey, it'd be great if the prom king was whoever was best at algebra, but that is just not how it works, I'm afraid. No, it's not how it works. And he also, so she went straight in that there was this revelation that there were things revealed 
that suggested that he fundamentally disagreed with the Rwanda thing. And his angle out of the gate was to say, well, I haven't seen those documents. And he kept yeah. saying, I haven't seen those documents. I thought it's just such an illiterate, I don't know who's advising him because the simple play at that point, right, is because he has now got behind the Rwanda scheme. Whether or not he still doesn't believe in it, and I've got a hunch he doesn't, that is what he's done. Yeah. So people always understand the difference that you sometimes say things, this is like how the COVID inquiries work. What you say is not always the same as what you do, right? So he could have just said, yeah, yeah, I did at the beginning. I did, but I realized that, you know, there are very few sort of viable options. Of the viable options, this is the least bad one, and therefore I'm behind it. But then he, he kept saying, well, I haven't seen the documents. And I sort of thought it was a bit like a bloke whose wife has accused him of cheating him. He's going, well, I'm not going to respond until I tell you which woman yeah. You're accusing me of sleeping with. You go, well, how many women are there? Which of my friends have you spoken to? Because I need to know that first before yeah, I... Which yeah, which of my three mobile phones did you crack the password for? So I just thought that was just... It was a simple way of the difference between... I mean, obviously, being accused of a U-turn isn't perfect either, but it's the difference between a complicated position and a farcical one. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's sort of like watching it. I felt annoyed with both sides because... I'm sort of annoyed with those kind of gotcha questions from journalists where they just they're sort of saying, well, yeah, but did you ever have any doubt about this? Did you ever have any hesitation? Like, let me, yeah, yeah, can yeah. I can I just, you know, can be crystal clear for the audience, you know, the audience care about this. And I thought, well, they sort of do and they sort of don't. This feels actually it is one of these very gotchery things where I don't actually think many people really care whether Rishi Sunak at one point in the past thought this was a good or a bad idea. What they care about is what's happening now. And so for me, it's almost the reverse. Like I think the Rwanda scheme is a bad idea. So I was sort of wanting him to say, yes, I did think it was a bad idea then, but now I've changed my mind for whatever reason. At least I would sort of respect that, even though I didn't agree with it. Yeah. Even though I think I agree with him then and I don't agree with him now. But pretending you never had like hesitation or any thought about it, it just sounds completely mad, doesn't it? If you if you spoke to someone in, in real life about anything like that, if you said to somebody, you know, Oh, you bought a house, and they said, "Yeah, we're buying, well, we're buying this house, and we're not quite sure about." And said, right, okay. Are you saying you never wanted to buy that house? Are you saying you never enjoyed that? That house was the <laughs> wrong house for you. That no, I'm just saying I've, we thought about it. And we're not quite sure about it, and we, you know, front room's a bit small. Ah, oh, right. So you're saying that you don't want to buy that? No, I'm. You know, and it's like that. No. Nobody... See, see, this is a great insight as to how a Matt Green sketch comes together. <laughs> I mean, you're right. It was an opportunity to almost sell the policy in a way. He had a platform. He could have said to her, Laura, like, I bet you at some point you wondered whether or not you should open with that question. I mm. bet at some point you were thinking, what if I just give him a little puff piece or a half volley but in the end you went with that question that suggests because ultimately you thought that was the right question he would have fucking turned the tables with her so fast she would have been it would have been very hard for her to recalibrate because she would because then she would have then had to go no no i was always going to open that question yeah. i've never had any doubts i, I I'd, I'd have to see the uh, voice notes that you're talking about but no he just went with a slightly petulant angle but that that's my big problem with political journalism and politics in general, I think, is that I think there's this feeling that everything has to be black and white, yes or no. There's no room for nuance. There's no room for people not even changing their mind, but but having some sense of like there was a kind of process, you know, where I came to a decision. And to be fair to him, he did sort of say that. He did say, you know, as chancellor, my job is to look at whether things are value mm. for money, blah, blah, blah. But then he ruined it from my point of view by then going, but then I have now decided and it, I've n I never actually changed my mind and it's all fine. And you think, well, come on, you could have, as you say, I think he has all these moments where he could give himself an opportunity to sort of sound reasonable and sound like someone who's weighing up options and stuff. But unfortunately, 
certainly from my point of view, the Tory party has gone so far right in the last few years that that would make him even less attractive to the people who he needs to vote for him, which is, that's a real kind of indictment of where our politics is now. I mean, that's the thing we say about the Tory party going right. That is one of the problems at the moment. There'll be a lot of my listeners who will think of other areas. So we say, right, certainly, I think immigration is the one area where you could say they've definitely moved to the right. And it certainly seems like you have to placate those people. But in terms of all the other stuff, like the size of the state, taxation, all that other stuff, but that, I suppose, in the perception of whether or not a party is right-wing. Immigration is the quickest way of seeming right-wing, isn't it? You could have like more or less Maoist policies elsewhere, but if the immigration policy was right-wing... And it's presentational as well, isn't it? I mean, obviously, to some extent, it's about how people, like what they decide to spend their time talking about. And there's a lot of culture war stuff. There's a lot of pretty... The whole Brexit debate was framed in a quite a sort of nasty way a lot of the time, and and certainly since then has been framed in quite an antagonistic way. And I think it's reasonable to say that the side of the party that is more right wing, that is more kind of nationalistic and small minded, and all those sorts of things, have been in the ascendancy. You know, and they they seem to be the ones who have the influence, and certainly post election feel like that that's the way the party is going to go. You know. On to Starmer, who'd spoke several days before. And this is now a new thing that you do your, your beginning of the year speech. You know, you come out of the blocks. And Sunak did slightly piss on his chips a little bit because it was believed that a lot of it was going to be talking about the fact that Sunak wouldn't commit to an election. And, and Sunak gave this half-assed commitment, which actually dominated the headlines. Hmm. I don't know, actually, if he's done Starmer a favour in dominating the headlines there because I watched a bit of the speech. And um, you just think, right, election year you got to start talking about stuff. And he, do you remember when he was going to produce that 12,000 word memo? You know, like his, his Jerry Maguire moment. Do you remember that yeah. when he was going, oh, yeah, what this country really needs is a 14,000 word memo. Dissertation. We need a dissertation. <laughs> well, I think he's going to deliver it in parts. You know, like, like you know, so it's like a sort of like live podcast. Yeah. And, and it did seem like, okay, it's more of the same. He's going to keep trying to shuffle his way towards number 10 on kind of vibes, really. Like mm. a lot of it is just, I know that in government, the Labour Party would be materially different, but people need to get a sense of what form that would take. And it was kind of, for me, surprising that he started, yeah, I thought, right, he knows it's going to be election year. It has to be election year. Say something, bruv. Just say something. And he's got, look, I think people are tired of, oh, here we go. Go on, do the other cliches. What are you hearing on the doorsteps, mate? What, what have you mm. heard? Is it time for a change by any chance? Is it time for a change? So I guess the question for me is, at some point, Labour would, of course, have to nail their colours to the mast with policies. The question is, when do they do that? And is, the point, is there a point where it's so late that people have sort of formed a view that they don't stand for much? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think <laughs> when you said, you know, Labour have to stand for something at some point, there was a little voice in my head thinking, do they though? Because actually, people keep saying the reason, you know, what's going to happen now is that Tories are going to lose the election rather than the Labour are going to win the election. That feels like a pretty basic, obvious thing to say. And it feels almost like the Labour Party are saying, all right, fine, we'll do that then. And actually, yeah, if yeah. you look back at like 97, of course, there was a very different feeling in the country. And Blair, you know, had this kind of vision. and But actually, when you really drill into it, he didn't say that much in advance. A lot of what we think about now as these big moments hmm. happens after 
you know, the, the Bank of England being made yeah. independent was, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that that was not part of their manifesto. That's just something they announced and said, we're going to do this. That was not what you think of for of a left-wing statist party to relinquish control over the Bank of England. And, and it's interesting you say that because I was reading something yesterday that was saying a lot, you know, a lot of the stuff that they did is similar to what Starmer's doing now, which is saying we're going to keep to certain spending rules. And, and yeah, there's going to be an element of continuity. Yeah, I remember that very clearly that, you know, I mean, I was young at the time I was sort of just leaving school so I kind of but I was interested in politics and I remember very very clearly the thing about you know we're going to stick to the Tory spending plans for the next two years was a huge deal and lots of people on the left and if Twitter was around at the time it would have exploded with horror and everyone been saying that's that's a terrible thing to do and arguably it was a bad thing to do that it did give them two years of not being able to do as much as they could have done but it did also give them that stability, which meant that when they wanted to spend big later, they could, and that people could sort of didn't object to it in the way that maybe they would have done if they'd come in and done it straight away. So, I'm not someone who's kind of holding a torch for Keir Starmer. I'm not someone. Who, I don't think he's like the most inspiring person or the most. Has he not sealed the deal with you, Matt? Do you, what do you think about the phrase of the idea of Keir Starmer? I wish they'd stop saying talk about him sealing the deal because when I grew up, sealing the deal was essentially about losing your virginity. So when or having sex with a person for the first time <laughs> when dated and. Every time they talk about Keir Starmer sealing the deal with the electorate, I get a very bad image. A little bit creepy, isn't it? It's a lot creepy. But in a way, it doesn't matter what I think about Starmer. Like, I think I'm, you know, I'm going to vote in a probably Labour because that's where I live is a quite a labour place and it would make sense. And I like our local MP. And so, yeah, I, I made that decision a long time ago. And I think with Starmer, I think, yeah, there is an element of like he has to just keep people remembering how rubbish the Tories are at the moment. And as someone who's more on the left and more kind of would like to see some more sort of big changes, yeah, I'd love to see some big policy announcements. But I can also see why they're not doing it at the moment. And it almost feels to me like the Tory... Certainly the Tory press are just there going, you've got to give us things to attack. <laughs> we haven't got enough to attack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Say something left wing, you dick. <laughs> it's like to use a football analogy, which Starmer would like. You know, it's like he's five nil up at half time yeah. and the press have come into the changing room at half time and saying, could you not take a few players off? Or could you not, you know, maybe completely change your tactics? Because we're getting killed here and it's boring. Like the second half is just going to be boring if you're just five nil up the whole time. And I think... It's perfectly reasonable for Sama to go, no, it's all right, thanks. I'll just carry on doing what we're doing. Well, I suppose the difference then could be, like I believe absolutely that Labour will win some sort of majority, right? So I guess it's the question of the size of the majority. And some of that might be down to, can you motivate the electorate to get out and vote, right? Is there going to be an issue with with turnout? So some of that might come down to policy at some point. So I do think that there is a judgment call somewhere along the line. One of the things you know, where Starmer could be a bit of an Achilles heel is in the debates if he wasn't up against Rishi Sunak. I've got this nightmare image of the debates. I think they're going to be some of the worst TV you've ever seen. Now, <laughs> Boris Johnson never delivered on his promise of being this urbane, witty, you know, sort of Bantz-led politician. And Corbyn was, was fucking boring to watch. Everyone forgets how boring Corbyn was every time he opened his mouth. And so so those were kind of freak shows <laughs> in, in one way. But I think that what we're going to get with Sunak and Starmer is just going to be worse than a freak show. It's just, it's just going to be so boring. I mean, I wonder if there might be some sort of deal between them because they've both got so little to gain by talking <laughs> that they might just go, should we just, should we just do the two main ones? You know what I mean? Let's not, let's not get into like the Carabao Cup level or the Papa John's level debates, right? Let's fuck all those off. Let's just do two. Let's commit. Like, let's make it a half hour and let's just speak as little as possible in public. 
Yeah, I mean, after Rishi did all of those debates with Liz Truss, I don't think he ever wants to do a debate again, surely, because there were just so many in a row, which I think also that must have been like a recurring nightmare for him because he was clearly... Of the two, he was clearly the more sane and more kind of reasonable. And he was just doing debates in front of audiences full of absolute lunatics, basically, who were kind of chanting for Liz Truss half the time. And he must have been thinking, what am I doing here? Why am I trying to impress these people? Well, but you did see in those debates, you saw some of the problems that Rishi has is he's just got to be annoyed because he's because Rishi's right. OK, and he's, you know, I'm right. I've done the, I've done the research. I'm right. And, and there was one where he just spoke over Liz Truss constantly. That is not a good look. And I just think that there's something he's got. A, you know what is weird actually about, right? Is that the COVID inquiry, which I think is probably like a really big deal. This is thing that's going to go down in history. It was the most prime ministerial I've ever seen him. He was very mm. composed. He was very convincing in the way that he spoke. Even his, his voice was a little bit deeper. Maybe it was the fact he was sitting down. I don't know. He had his stuff. He had his files. You know, you could refer to stuff. He'd done the work. You know, maybe that's what he needs is like a little pair of Apple glasses. You know, these glasses <laughs> that we're being sold where you... Like 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 he can pull like pull up spreadsheets as he goes. <laughs> Maybe that's the key for Rishi is a combination of Apple glasses and some of the best beta blockers on the market. Like, <laughs> get that heartbeat down to like thirty per minute. I watched his testimony at the um, COVID inquiry, and I, I know what you mean. He did come across as very calm. He started getting tetchy towards the end, definitely. But then we've all been there. We've all been in a situation where you've you know you're getting a bit tired and a bit hungry and a bit thirsty and you kind of start getting a bit less do you know what they should do they should get like some labor fans into the crowd and in the style of like a football chant just go he's <laughs> gonna cry in a minute cry in a minute no shut up shut up i'm not i'm totally not I, I'm, I'm absolutely i feel totally composed hope you're enjoying the chat with Matt Green there. I've got, I just want to chip in and do a few more shout outs to new patrons. We've got a guy called Mark the Man the Myth. <laughs> I mean, that's like funnier if it's not ironic, isn't it? The Man the Myth, Marky. I mean, what stuff have you done to become a myth? That means you don't exist, actually. Maybe it's the legend? The Man the Myth. What kind of, like, is it some epic drinking feat or just how many women you slept with in one weekend or... Or is it just how many pills you took uh, when you was in Ibiza? Maybe your mates call you Mitsubishi Mark. Yeah, you've done 16 pills in one night, mate. You know. And we've also got Matt Wynn. Matt Wynn, returning patron. Good to see you back, Matt. And Mr. Wynn. Mr. Wynn. Always tricky going in a casino with that sort of name, isn't it? Did they even let you in? I mean, there is literally a casino in Vegas called the Wynn Casino. Imagine losing your shirt. At the Wynn Casino, when your name is called Wynn. And we've also got Michael Clarkson. Michael Clarkson just sounds like, you know, one of those Tory um, junior ministers in the 80s. You know, one of those ones that actually had quite a bad scandal, but just wasn't famous enough for it to matter. You know, he did the gimp mask. He did the orange ball in the mouth, but he was just, no one gave a shit. It was like, is it Heseltine? Then no one gives a fuck. I just want to hype the tour, which resumes at the end of this month. I've got gigs coming up in Tring. First ever tour show in Grimsby. It sold all right, but I had loads of messages going, come to Grimsby. And it hasn't sold as well as, I mean, I literally haven't sold as many tickets as there were messages telling me to come to Grimsby. So maybe I'm being pranked. Mansfield, Derby, Tewkesbury. I haven't mentioned Tewkesbury. Uh, so that's the first time there. In fact, all of those are uh, first time tour shows there. And also a heads up that the tour is almost sold out in the following places. Stevenage, massive in Stevenage, mate. Massive in Stevenage. Beautiful town. <laughs> 
Just, it's got the worst looking town centre, mate. It's one of those few places that's still got like an indoor market. But I kind of respect that. Bristol, uh, that's nearly sold out. That's an extra day already in Bristol. Nottingham, Winchester, Bath, and of course, Southend. Southend's always been good to me. If you want to come to any of those shows, get online now and buy them. Otherwise, you will miss out. Okay, let's get back to the chat with Matt. So Matt, just to talk about comedy in 2024, topical comedy in an election year. We sort of indirectly spoke about your clips and how they work. And I, I'd recommend people go on and have a look. And, you know, there's loads of great stuff out there. I think you're going on tour. Are you on tour already? When's the tour start? I'm doing some previews soon. And then my tour is in February and March. February and March. I mean, one of the things is, I mean, obviously you've been a great stand-up for years I work with, but then you've had this huge success with Eclipse. I mean, it's quite an obvious question really, but is, is, is how do you work out how you translate that to tour? Because are you trying to work out, right, who wants to see clippy stuff? Who wants to see stand-up stuff? And, and do I have to sort of make an executive decision on behalf of everyone? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I first started doing the clips and they started doing all right on socials, I you know, people were saying to me, oh, you're going to do a tour and stuff. And I, for a while I was quite resistant because I thought I don't, I feel like what I'm doing on stage and what I do online is quite different. And I don't want to kind of get those mixed up. But after a while, I thought, I think there is a way of doing it. And the way I've kind of decided to do it is basically the first half of the show, instead of having a support act, which a lot of touring comics do, you know, sort of 20 minutes, half an hour at the beginning from a sort of warm up act, I'm basically being my own support act and I'm playing a character. So I'm doing my kind of Tory minister character as a live act for the first half of the show, sort of talking in that way that you would expect me from the clips. And he's kind of stupid and making up stuff and interacting with the audience and asking them what their big issues are and his his response to that and all that kind of thing. And sort of and then the second half, which is longer, it's more of a stand-up show, which is yeah, a kind of mix of stand-up material that you might have seen me do in the clubs and more sort of political material more stuff that's maybe not quite as topical more kind of general political the gateway drug is the video's got you in the door but luckily and that's the thing is maybe you've got a benefit against some people to blow up through clips is that you've been doing stand-up a very busy working comic for a long time now i think a benefit that you you've got is sometimes i look at the kind of the anti-tory industry right and and you don't have to comment on these things but there are some people i look at i go i can't wait to see what you're posting about two weeks after labor game <laughs> because no shade on carol vorderman when you've got people that just say oh if, if you love the tories you'll hate me in their bio you go first yeah. off, how many people love the tories i'm not sure <laughs> the fucking tories love the tories right so they've set themselves up so much like their first thing that they tweet is get this government out and stuff i think you've been smart is that your style your tone is relaxed enough that i could absolutely see how you could flip that to scrutinize in a labor government it's definitely i mean was was something like the thick of it an influence because it's definitely got in a really good way it's got some of that in the clips you know of just just sort of satirizing the ridiculousness and the hypocrisy of politicians once you put them in front of the camera oh definitely i mean for me it goes back further than that to people like John Fortune and John Bird, the Long Johns. Um, yeah, yeah, those those duologues. I fucking love those, man. I guess in some ways they may be maybe the most influential things I ever watched as a kid because they were when I was sort of a yeah you know, teenager, mm. I suppose, watching those in the dying days of the major government, and they were just brilliant. Quite often, my I feel like the sketches that I'm doing are basically a kind of homage to them, really, because it's two characters who are sort of the same person 
playing off each other. And one's an interviewer and one's a... It was always... Um, what was it? George George Dawes? No, not George Dawes. That's, uh, that was Matt Lucas. George yeah, Parr. that was shooting stars. I think it was George Parr or something, you know, minister. And it was always Mr. George Parr who was like a minister or he was a executive or he was a you know important person in some way mm. so it was that idea that it's about what's happening in the moment and the, the the sort of interplay between the characters which was was really fun about it i think it's you know i think it's well set for you you know going you know into potentially a labor government i think that comedy this year generally is going to be interesting because it's the first everything's been very similar for the last sort of four or five elections in terms of social media and comedy where there's this real passion to get the Tories out. Most of the comedy industry have been very supportive of Labour, you know, indirectly and and their leader to an extent. Certainly, certainly in the early bit of the Corbyn years, it, it wasn't 100%, but there was a high level of support, you know, with Corbyn. It, grime for Corbyn, Jesus Christ, I just remembered hmm. about that. We don't have anything like that popular levels of support for Starmer. And if you look at like the topical shows, you know, at one point there was Mash Report, there was uh, Mock of the Week, Have I Got News For You, Last Leg, Eight out of ten cats, Frankie Boyle show. We just there's just two of those shows now. I think. Yeah. So it's going to be different now, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you got less shows for comedians to kind of do their stuff on telly. Of course, news quiz is still going strong. And then on the other hand, you've got like left wing comics who are not that excited about Starmer. Let's be honest. This they're not getting padded up and going into batting quite the same way that some of them did for Corbyn. And on the other hand, you've got greater diversity of opinions within comedy. You know, in what's called right wing comedy, which is often mm. Not exclusively that, but people pushing up against what are perceived to be orthodoxies. So it feels like the big lines of attack will probably come from social media this time. I think so. I mean, I think I just worry generally with comedy that and with politics too, that everything becomes so sort of siloed and so teamified. I mean, James O'Brien calls it the footballification of politics, which I think and that is a I think is a good phrase, because it's that thing of you're supporting your team, you know, whether or not they're winning or losing and whether or not you think they're playing well. And I think there's a real... I mean, in fairness, he did write a book called How to Be Right. That's, that's reasonably <laughs> tribal. So, so yeah. in my view, he's, he's, he's not that far away from that world as he likes to think. But I think the point is fair. Uh, and I'm sure he would accept that. But I think there's a... There's a it's not a, a new idea that, that everything's very polarised, but mm. it is so polarised now. And social media exacerbates that hugely. And... You know, obviously, you have your followers who like what you do, and if and it's weird. I think it's always interesting, and I'm, I know you've had this, I'm sure, on things like Twitter, where you write something which is kind of a bit of a silly joke, and it's kind of really for your followers because you know what they like, and you know, and you make a joke about something, and then it mm. goes a bit viral, and then suddenly there are loads of people who don't know who you are, don't know what your normal tone is, or don't know <laughs> what your normal way of talking about stuff is, yeah. and suddenly you're being accused of being a fascist, or you're being accused of being a Maoist or a crazy person, and you're like, "Oh, hang on, no, you you've misread what I said there." You know, but in a way, you have and you haven't, because in in one sense, if you just took it on just what I've written, yeah, I can see where you can see those interpretations. But you've got to understand that I'm someone who has written. A, you know, if I write one thing about Starmer, I'll get a few people going. You know, why are you attacking Starmer? Because it's soon out. You need to be attacking. You need to be. And I'm always like, "Hang on, have you watched any of my videos?" <laughs> like, I I'm pretty consistently center left but i make the occasional video about other stuff because i think it's important to mix it up i find it so funny that that people could you because you're such a a nice guy like you're not like an attack based comic you know you come at the subject in a subtle way it's so funny to hear that people like matt green you fucking fascist or you maoist I'll, I'll be totally honest it doesn't happen very often like i'm i have been lucky and i think compared to a lot of people, you know, frankly, female comedians get a lot, lot more shit 
than male comedians. That's just a fact on social media, and sadly. But yeah, it, social media, as you know, can be pretty uh, pretty mad place sometimes. Well, listen, um, do check out Matt's tour. Go to his socials. All the details will be there. Okay, so that was uh, Matt Green there. Lovely bloke. A very good comic. Do go and check him out on tour. Uh, we haven't done this for a couple of while, so let's do uh, some letters. Okay, I've got a couple of letters here. This is the first up is from James, who emailed me. If you want to email me, what most people think UK at gmail.com. So I've been having a pop at working from home, people. Oh, God, fucking hell. Did you have to log on, James? Did you actually have to log on to send this email? God, you guys, you have it. You have it the toughest, I reckon. He said, so you've joined the anti-working from home brigade, have you? But don't you actually work from home? All right, yeah, I get it, I get it. Yeah, when I do this, yes, but you know the bit where I go to like 80 dates on a UK tour? Sad, Sadly, I can't do that from home. He goes on to say, I mean, I always thought you recorded the podcast at home and wrote a lot of your material at home. Do you not think other people are capable of doing that? All right, okay, I'll take your point. I am, firstly, James, you've got to understand, I am just jealous of the working from home people. As much as I love a travel lodge. The idea of you's lot, fucking like three days a week, just rolling out of bed at 9.30, farting around, sending a couple of emails and then saying you've had a productive day. I just, you're, you're look, I, what can I say? I've got it in for the WFHs. Yeah, I do some work at home, but here's, here's the rub, James, and this is the problem. I often write stand-up by walking. I have my best ideas when I'm walking the dog. So even then, James, I'm... I'm not technically working from home. James goes on to say, I go into the office twice a week. Some days it's worth it, but a lot of time I'm sat in the corner coding. And if I have any... Me- well, well, here you go, James. Your job, you're a coder, okay? There are some jobs which are obviously not meant for hu- other humans to even see each other, James. I mean, I'm not even sure. It'd probably bring you out in a rash. <laughs> are we making friends here, James? And he goes, at the end, he does say there are a lot of jobs where it really doesn't matter where you do at least part of them, yours included at home. I I would say that if I wasn't on an 80-day tour whereby I was spending an average of seven hours on the road, time in hotels, you know, two hours on stage, that that would, I think you've forgotten that I actually do live comedy, James. But I appreciate, this is what the, the emails are for, is call me out. If I'm talking shit, call me out. And, and also I got an email from Bill who said that... Um, well, basically, it comes down to a question of what the fuck is going on with all these big names doing quizzes on ITV? So if you haven't seen, Stephen Fry and Graham Norton are both now doing quizzes on ITV. Because quizzes, I think what's happened with ITV uh, is they've just gone, right, what do we do that's good? Celebrity, mass Singer. So we do like the big entertainment shows, dramas about like post offices and quizzes, as many fucking quizzes as we can get into our schedule. But even we realised that to get people to watch them, you know, it could be overkill. So let's just throw, God knows what they paid these boys. So apparently in the Stephen Fry one, Jeopardy, which is an American format that they've tried in the UK a couple of times, is Stephen Fry just said to his agent one day, like, I, I think that I would quite like to host that show. and then, or, or just that he liked it. And his agent, doing what an agent should do and what agents do do, was like, f- just immediately, you know, like those old cartoons where the dollar signs flash up in their eyes. He immediately got onto ITV and goes, Stephen would love to host, just so you know, Stephen would love to host Jeopardy. And before you know it, Stephen Fry is hosting Jeopardy. And it's it's just a bit odd because it's ITV tea time quiz and the set looks a bit like mid-noughties and you kind of go, but it's Stephen Fry, like QI. I get it. I totally get it. I know that it's a general knowledge type quiz, but 
it does feel like um, a weird thing for him to be doing. Like you think in an alternate universe, he's like Stephen Mulhern in a fucking costume drama. <laughs> Like doing a Jane Austen film. Do you know what I mean? It feels like a weird... I know Fry's hosted a quiz show before, but this feels like he's stepping into... If I was Bradley Walsh and Mulhern, I'd be like, fucking hell, these boys haven't done the yards. And Graham Norton, I mean, obviously it takes a while to get used to a format, but um, he did... You Sometimes you, you see a thing in a, in a fellow performer's eyes where you at least go... Are they wondering about this? Because the thing about Wheel of Norton, Fortune, they should have called it Wheel of Norton, shouldn't they? Wheel of Fortune is you have to spin that fucking wheel a lot of times. So the problem with quiz shows is, is, and every single time they spin it, the audience has to clap. So I think it's it's a kind of format that works when you're watching it at home on telly, but it exhausts the fuck out of you otherwise. So yeah, it is weird. I agree with you, Bill. It is weird seeing these kind of like national treasure types doing quiz shows. So I can only conclude that the next logical thing will be that uh, David Attenborough will, will <laughs> David Attenborough will just suddenly be on ITV going, come on down. Okay, that is the end of uh, this week's show. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Just if you can be asked, um, my social media guys said to me that the I'm not getting enough uh, reviews on iTunes at the moment. They've gone down generally, but if somebody could go on and do a review, that would be good. Let's just see if there were. If you leave a five star on iTunes, I will read it out. Let's see if I've had any recently. This is always rolling the dice a little bit. Oh, here's a nice one. Five star from someone who seems to have fallen asleep on their laptop because it's just a selection of random letters. Uh, one of the best podcasts podcast of the year this week's podcast with ian dale was simply superb you two have such a fantastic rapport and the way you talk about politics is interesting and also very funny let me just go on to the next one. Oh, okay this person did not does not like it this is from granny m oh shit i'm getting told off by a grandma she says not what most people think not even vaguely funny like one of those shouty people at a party who thinks they're funny and makes you cringe oh the cringe word they always bring out the cringe word i'm sorry you didn't like it granny m i mean i can't i can't be mean to a granny can you i've just got to, you've just the thing about maybe maybe we should get more like old ladies in the police force because when an old lady tells you off you have to just go sorry sorry <laughs> Sorry, mother. I'm sorry, mother. Uh, but look, if you can be asked uh, a five-star review, if you do enjoy the podcast, it helps keep it high in the algorithms, blah, blah, blah. Helps me get guests. But uh, thanks for listening to the first episode uh, of the week. And I'll join you again next week for another episode. Oh,